Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner, your favorite Georgetown Hoya casual podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Bancroft, and I'm here with special guest Patrick Stevens, current contributor to the Washington Post. He's been covering basketball, I want to say, for at least 20 years. You can find him on Twitter at Discourse. That's with a one, not an I. Patrick, under normal circumstances, we probably would have already seen each other a couple times between Georgetown and George Mason, but this is anything but normal, so we have not seen each other in a long, long time. How's it going? Oh, it's rolling along. I, I, I think uh, I think it's probably going about the same for me as it is a lot of other folks. Uh, I've <laughs> certainly become very, very familiar with uh, with all the walls and the doors in my house. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've sort of come to the come to the conclusion that I'm probably not going to see a whole lot of basketball in person this season. Uh, probably not going to see any Georgetown basketball in person this season. Uh, and just kind of hoping that, uh, that, that we can get on with this and, and, uh, and, and, and solve some problems that ultimately uh, make it possible to see basketball next season. So, yeah, speaking of that, so yeah. usually, like I said, we probably would have already – seen each other at a Georgetown game or George Mason game, you usually have, and I know that you do a great job tweeting it. You kind of put out, I think it's every, maybe the night before every morning you put out like the definitive list of all the local games. And I feel like you probably get out to more local games and what you describe or what you define as local is pretty broad, but you get out there. How many games a season would you typically be at? You think, I guess excluding the tournaments. Excluding the tournaments, I mean, yeah. you're looking you're looking at a season that runs what? I mean, it runs about what the December or January, so about 120 days or so, give or take. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about this season would have started this past Friday, uh, or probably this past when last Tuesday actually, because they had moved it back. So it would have started probably on the 10th, um, and that would have you know, run through about the 8th or so of March, about, so I'd say probably 95 to 100 games total. And there's some days in there where it's multiple multiple games. Um, some days in there, there just isn't anything to, to go see. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, by now, I it, like I said, you know, the season had started on the 10th. By now, I probably would have seen five or six games. Easily, easily. So I wanted to go over – COVID, go over Georgetown's opponents, and then we talked about something months ago, just sort of looking and comparing Ewing heading into year four to other people. There's probably no better way to start, unfortunately, than COVID. Um, I know that you're also contributing to Washington Post college football coverage right now, and a lot of people, I don't know if you've said it, you probably have, but a lot of people have said, you know, for college basketball, you kind of kind of look to college football and if you like college basketball, you should be rooting for college football to get through a season, to get through clean. Um, with what's happening in college football, I know that we have seen a bunch of cancellations and or I should say postponements. Do you think what's happening in college football can be seen by college basketball fans as positive, negative, somewhere in between? Well, on a sort of basic level, and this is a really basic level, Anything is better than nothing, right? Like yeah. the fact that there is something that you're getting out of that is better than nothing. And, and let's let's also 
for the purposes of this conversation, unless we double back to it, let's zoom zoom away from the idea of, you know, the argument that something might not be a great idea from a global public health perspective. Right. Um, but it, the goal is you want basketball. I think anything that you see there where there's the will to get something done and the opportunity to get something done and it gets done as a good thing. Uh, there's obviously a will uh, to get some sort of college football done. We, we would not have seen the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 insist upon starting in September if there wasn't. We definitely wouldn't have seen the Big 10 and Pac-12 double back um, from their original decision and then have truncated seasons if there wasn't the will to do that. And obviously, I mean, to, to, let's not beat around the bush here, the reason that we see college football right now is, is these schools like money. Uh, and they think that some money is better than no money. Uh, and they're not wrong about that uh, in the sense that, you know, it would be in much worse straits financially if these games weren't being played. There would be probably significantly more layoffs over the long haul if these games weren't played. We can be here all night discussing whether or not that's, uh, that's a good thing for the actual players that are involved in this enterprise. But from a university perspective, that's what's going on. So... How does that impact basketball? Well, the NCAA really, really, really needs to have a men's basketball tournament this year. And so the, the will is there to have a college basketball season of some kind. Uh, and, and, so, and so that's what we're on the doorstep of seeing, a, a basketball season that will probably get interrupted in some way or another. There's virtually no chance that we don't see teams go through two-week shutdowns, perhaps multiple two-week shutdowns uh, per team, I mean. And so the will is there uh, to be able to do that. Now, can they get through? It's going to be a little bit harder uh, with, your, with your infection rates going up all over the country. You're, you're seeing a larger percentage of games on the football side getting shelved over the last couple of weeks than what we were seeing in mid-October and late September. There were still games that were getting shelled, but there's a larger percentage of them, not just not just a, a larger raw number, but a larger percentage. So can you get through it as things continue to get worse and worse and worse on that front? That's a little dicey, but there's obviously a will to get it done, and there's a, fi and there's a financial incentive to be able to have some kind of NCAA tournament to put on TV uh, and to fulfill the contract with CBS and Turner so that the NCAA uh, is able to have its cash cow again after a one-year hiatus. So from where I'm looking, and I don't cover college football every once in a while, I might do a game for the AP, but it's really rare. I follow it. It seems like to me that the standard for postponing a college football game, like for instance, we're recording this on – What's today? Today's the 17th. And this past weekend, it looked like Miami was not going to play at Virginia Tech. They got the game in. Now Miami, I think, I think yesterday I saw people were saying that they're going to have, they're going to miss their next two games. They're going to have to postpone them. It seems like the standard for playing a game while there's people out with COVID, there's flexibility to do so. Whereas in basketball, it seems like if, you know, if like one walk on on your roster were to get 
were to come positive with COVID, you're looking at a shutdown for two weeks. Is that is that kind of correct from like a, that a, is know, a macro? That is basically correct. On the football side, you can because you can you can break people off into position groups and and there's a, a way. I'm not really sure how effective it is, but you can find a way to practice without having that much constant exposure. Um, yes, you know, you might lose your entire quarterback room or you might lose too much of your offensive line, and that would cause a postponement. But it's possible that on a, on a roster with 100 players on it, that if you have two or three tests, you wouldn't necessarily, even with the contact tracing, lose out on um, being able to play. You still have enough guys to be able to play. When you look at, like, the NCAA basketball guidelines, you know, and they talk about tier one individuals, you know, this is essentially players, coaches, trainers, um, physical therapists, et cetera, right? And so, you know, when you look at the NCAA's sort of guidelines and they say, you know, if, if a tier one individual tests positive, it's suggested that everybody else that's a tier one individual quarantine for 14 days as soon as possible. So essentially, if you have a single test on a basketball team, you're shut down for two weeks. And there's basically no getting around that. And realistically, that two-week shutdown is something closer to two and a half to three weeks. Because if you're not practicing, I mean, are you going to really, after everybody comes out of quarantine one day, uh, let, let, let's say everybody comes out of quarantine at 10 a.m. Are you really gonna Are you really gonna head over to the arena and play at seven o'clock that night? So you're probably not going to be able to do that for a couple days. So uh, just the difference in roster size uh, by itself essentially makes this a little bit different. The other thing too is you have certain leagues have um, different rules in football for how long you're on the shelf after a positive test. You know, we saw it with Clemson and Trevor Lawrence. It was 10 days. Now, that 10 days cost him two games, but it was only 10 days, whereas in the Big Ten, we've seen it be three weeks, uh, and you have things like Wisconsin getting basically shelved for two games. You've seen Illinois go through four different starting quarterbacks in four weeks, uh, in part due to some of this stuff. So. You know, I, I think that that's the that's the thing that's going to be hard for basketball um, is, is simply <laughs> if you have a single positive test, you're done for two weeks. Even a false positive uh, can shut you down for three or four days before everything gets itself sorted out. So that's sort of the battle you're fighting uh, from in college basketball. Is just simply, it, it really is kind of one and done for two weeks, if you will. Do you think we've seen the Pac-12 and football all of a sudden go to this scheduling where if Oregon's playing Arizona and Arizona can't play and then across town or across the state, Oregon State, their partner can't play, well, then they're saying, okay, well, okay, you guys are going to start playing instead. Do you think that – And the, it seems like that would be even easier in basketball. Do you think that's something that, that, that might happen where there's a season where – maybe Georgetown plays UConn four times just because other teams can't play? Well, heck, I mean, I think anything is on the table for this year. I mean, you can look in like the – in the Patriot League right now, Holy Cross and Boston University are going to play six times or scheduled. <laughs> American and Loyola, closer to home, they're going to play six times. 
Um, so, you know, I, I think, and you've seen all these variations of this where you have teams, especially in some of your, your one-bid leagues, are going to play like a Friday-Saturday at one site. Uh, the America East is one of the leagues that's doing that. The Colonial is one of the leagues that's doing that. Uh, that becomes a little harder when you start getting your leagues up into 12 and 14 teams. Uh, the Big East could probably do it if it wanted to, uh, but the fact that they're going to have everybody play, what, four conference games prior to Christmas makes that a little bit dicier. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think you could see if, if somebody doesn't go to that sort of thing and insists upon essentially sort of a, a Wednesday-Saturday approach to this, uh, and obviously you have Tuesday games and, and you have Sunday games and all that. But the point, the idea being one weekday, one weekend, one weekday, one weekend all the way through. Uh, I, I think you could definitely see something like that, especially if you have a situation where, let's say, let's say Creighton was supposed to go to St. John's and then Villanova in back-to-back games. And let's say Villanova was supposed to also have Marquette in that same week. And let's say Marquette um, and St. John's get dinged and have to and have to shut down for a little while. I mean, what you might as well just have Creighton play play Villanova at that point. Who else are they going to play? Especially if they're already out there uh, on the East Coast when that happens. Now, I think the other argument you have is is sort of a, the idea, and this is a this is if you're looking at the Big East where you could sit there and say, well, maybe you do a regionalized, like three regionalized divisions, for example. Uh, maybe that's, I haven't got myself a little out in front here, but if you had UConn, Providence, St. John's, Seton Hall, Villanova, Georgetown, uh, and then DePaul, Marquette, Creighton, and Xavier, I guess Butler's in there too. That makes it a little harder. Um, or even just two divisions, uh, a West and an East. Um, maybe you at some point kind of push it towards that sort of approach where you're going to you try to get 20 games in but most of those games are going to be against teams that are closer to your area now granted like the Creighton isn't necessarily near anybody in the Big East but uh, there's obviously that core group uh, on the East Coast uh, that, that probably can get to each other fairly quickly so that's something that could work. And again, I'm just sort of tossing everything. I'm just tossing something here on the wall, and who knows if who knows if it could work or if it even should work. That was the original plan for the fall sports, particularly soccer, when you know they thought they were going to play the fall sports, which generally start mid-August. But uh, you know, obviously, the Big East was not the conference that started realignment, and I think it would be hard to argue that they didn't do a good, that, you know, they didn't do a good job basketball wise selecting the schools they did because there's been success and all the schools they've added have done well. But is if I can't imagine anything that's shining a brighter light on the fact of how ridiculous realignment was. And like I said, this is not, this is not to blame the big East. Cause I think they probably liked the league that they had, but they had already gotten kind of Frankensteinish before the final round of, or the last round of conference realignment. Right. But just the fact that you talk about the big East and if there was ever a time to just have like a bus league, this would be it. You can't take a bus to Omaha. Well, you could. It's just going to take you a while. <laughs> yes, um, that, yes, that, that you're right. You can take a bus to Omaha. I would not advise it. 
you know, you haven't, we haven't even started talking about things like uh, <laughs> quarantine demands for out-of-state visitors coming in, um, which is another factor that's going to be um, something that the Big East is going to have to, and not just the Big East, but everybody is going to have to grapple with here before long. So uh, I'm sure do, that do you remember? Thing, do you remember how baseball got around that? How baseball got around the quarantine stuff? Well, first of all, remember in baseball that the numbers weren't quite as bad in July and August as they are now. So that helped a little bit. And yeah. I feel like there I feel like there weren't there weren't too many jurisdictions that had really stingy um elements. DC was one of them and I think New York was one of them. But I'm not sure there were too many others that were super stingy about how um, about how they were going to deal with those out-of-state visitors at that point. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the cash cow that the NCAA needs. They need their tournament. Um, Rick Pitino, who's back in college basketball, he's been in the Big East multiple times uh, as an assistant and as a head coach. And his team, Iona, is having their problems right now. He came out this past week and said that they need to push everything back to February and maybe have May Madness. Is that something that you think was really considered, or is that something that Patino is saying because his team's already, you know, been affected by this, a little bit of everything? Who knows if February is even going to be a good time to start then? You know, there's a million angles to this, but do you think that there was any consideration? Because all the sports that have mm-hmm. happened – like, for instance, we just had the Masters this past weekend. It got the worst ratings of all time. And kind of every sport that's been playing at weird times mm-hmm. has been getting that. Do you think there was any consideration to that? Or it's just like, look, if we can get teams that play 13 games, we're having a tournament. Well, let, let me take a step back for a minute. Um, and this is the soapbox that I promised here. Okay. Okay. Globally speaking, all right, and, and, and I'm going to – I don't want an immediate response this initial statement. What we should be doing is we shouldn't be doing anything. Uh, it's the same deal as it was in March. The best thing you can do is have everybody hole up for two months. Now, realistically, that's not going to happen. So let's shelve the let's shelve the idea that um, you're going to just hole up and, and and not do anything involving anybody for the next two months. If you're not going to do that, then the absolute best thing you can do if you're just committed to trying to have a season is having as much time as possible to play that season. If that means some people are playing games in November and they're playing all the way through until mid-April and that's what it takes to be able to have a season, then you do it. Uh, I think if you're college basketball – uh, yeah, you know what, uh, your ratings might not be great or whatever, but your goal is to provide the inventory so that you're able to collect your money. You're in the middle of, what, a 12-year contract with CBS and Turner, something along those lines. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, if, if CBS and Turner don't get a return on the investment for a single year out of that, well, um, so... There's zero reason to not, if you don't care about 
the whole, you know, it would be in the public's best interest to not have any of this and not have any opportunity to, uh, or at least reducing the opportunity of having any kind of spread here. If you ignore that, then you might as well start now and go for as long as possible. Because you're going to need, as, we, as we're learning in football, you're going to need extra time to do this. And you're probably going to even, even need even more extra time than football does um, with worse infection rates, with an indoor sport, et cetera, et cetera. So I agree that you need to be prepared to push this thing into April and maybe May, where now you're not going to be going up against the NBA playoffs or the NHL playoffs. So you still kind of in that area will have um, you'll, you'll have prime real estate uh, in, or a lack of competition uh, on the sports calendar. I mean, the Masters will come up again in April, I suppose. Um, but, you know, to sit there and say, well, we shouldn't start now. I mean, if you're committed to it, you better start now. I mean, you frankly better have started two weeks ago. Uh, to give yourself as much time as possible, but um, I, I have a feeling that that uh, that the extension of the season is going to be forced upon everybody in college hoops at some point or another. Whether that's only by a week or two or by even more, uh, I, I think external events will, will ultimately dictate that. But if you if you really really want to have a season, there's no reason to wait another two or three weeks to do that, even if there's a handful of teams. They can't start on that date themselves. That makes sense. You start it, and then maybe you have May Madness just because of the way that it went. But clearly, if you wait till February with, yeah, I, I, that, I definitely follow that train of logic if you are dead set on having a tournament. Um, with the way that the NCA is now going to do the whole tournament in Indianapolis, one, the, do you think that that eliminates the possibility of conference tournaments? Um, and two, would you think that it would all be at one place? Or are we talking about, you know, multiple places in, in Indy? Well, I think, I think if you're going to do that, um, the incentive to bring together multiple teams at the same venue is go a week in advance isn't particularly prudent. And I think we might see kind of a throwback situation where it's just, okay, regular season champion, you're already going to have enough problems with people complaining about, well, how do you, um, how do you fairly size up um, who's worthy of being in this tournament when you don't have a huge non-conference sample size? Some teams won't have a non-conference sample size at all. Um, there's also the question of how many more leagues bail on the season uh, between now and you know, the first of the year or something like that. We already have one extra at-large bid this season with the Ivy League passing. Um, and not to, not to put words in anybody's mouth, because I really don't know this, and I haven't talked to anybody out of the Patriot League, but the Patriot League does tend to track pretty closely to what the Ivy League does. I mean, it's very similar groups of schools, essentially. You're not necessarily, it's not necessarily Princeton and Harvard in the Patriot League, but it's a, it's a league that takes its academics really, really, really seriously. So, on that front, 
you know, I, I, I have a feeling that conference tournaments will be something, especially in some of the smaller leagues where they, they where there isn't as much money to do as much testing as possible, where you'll just go, okay, we we might have to make that decision. If yeah, you're, it just seems like if you're going to do what you're doing in Indianapolis right before then, why would you want to get like for the Big East, you get eleven teams together somewhere, you know, for the correct. ACC, you get fifteen. Like that makes no sense. Now, the alternate thought there is that because everything, because having any kind of competition right now is being driven by money, how much money are each of these leagues receiving from television networks for their conference tournaments specifically? How much, how much is that getting driven? And, and I don't have copies of each television contract to work with here, so I couldn't tell you what that number is, but it's, it's a non-zero number for sure. So yeah, so that is a that is a thought there um, that you're basically fit. I mean, it's all this is all an exercise in filling television. As for the indie situation, I can't imagine that you're going to try to have the entire tournament played at one venue for the exact same reasons we're talking about for why you wouldn't have conference tournaments. And the thing about indie that's so appealing is that there are multiple venues within an hour or so of Indianapolis that could theoretically host four-team or eight-team pods for an opening weekend. I mean, you've got you've got um, Lucas, Oil Sta- Lucas Oil Stadium, right? The Colt Stadium. Right. You have um, whatever the heck the Pacers Arena is called now. Is that Banker's Life? I think so. Okay. You have Hinkle Fieldhouse. There's another Coliseum. I think it's where IUPUI plays. But there's another there's another Coliseum in Indianapolis. Uh, you have Indiana University an hour away. You've got Purdue 90 minutes away. And you have a state that has more big high school gyms than just about any other. Now, some of those, I've, I've read a little bit in the last couple of days, some of those courts aren't college regulation size like they're like 84 feet or something like that um not all of them would be conducive to being able to host that but you can get yourself up to six to eight sites pretty quickly uh looking at that and even if that's not good enough i mean i think um trying to remember exactly and i'll just get out google maps here as i talk to you um like i'm trying to think of how far away like indiana state is from Indianapolis. I feel like it's within 90 minutes or so. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's 75, 76 miles to Terre Haute. So that's another place that you could go if you really had to. You have, you have enough, um, arenas in that area that you could realistically have eight sub-regionals, um, and be able to pull it off that way. Even, I mean, Ball State's only an hour or so away. It's only 60 miles a month from Indianapolis. So it, that's about as good a spot uh, as you could imagine that's also not going to have ridiculous quarantine um, protocols. I, if you're sitting there saying, well, what's a great place to go? You, you, could argue, you could argue New York would be a great place to go because there's so many schools there. But you're not going to be able 
to get all those teams into, into New York City uh, and be able to play within a few days of showing up. Whereas at this point, it's reasonably likely that you would be able to do that uh, in Indianapolis. Well, it'll just be weird that there's no games in Greensboro or Raleigh. Raleigh, Raleigh's the, Raleigh's the loser this year, but we also lose uh, traditional <laughs> traditional NCAA tournament site Providence. I mean, yeah. like grow, growing up, I mean, did you not expect to see the Providence Civic Center, the Hartford Civic Center, the Spectrum, the Carrier Dome, and the Meadowlands? Like, if one of those wasn't hosting a, an opening weekend site, there just something wasn't right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think we're about the same age. And that's definitely, if I close my eyes, those are the sites that I'm picturing. Also, it seemed like Boise got games a lot. Boise got games a lot, too, especially, you know, you can still remember, you can still remember that crazy court with the, with the orange and the white and the blue. There's yeah. Not as many, there's not as many cities out west that have consistently bid for, bid for and received tournament games. I and mean, we could sit here and, and go through it right now. Boise, Spokane, Seattle, Portland, Sacramento, um, Anaheim, San Diego, Tucson, Salt Lake City, Albuquerque. I mean, that's basically, and Denver, uh, but that's basically it. Yeah. Um, you've, you've seen, I guess Oakland is, has popped in, the, Oakland, San Jose, really. San Jose's popped in there a little bit too, but for the most part, I mean, that largely covers uh, who would have been hosting NCAA tournament games. Phoenix, I left Phoenix out, um, and Vegas is going to get into the mix here soon too, uh, but wasn't going to previously. So, but yeah, it's, Boise got its share. I mean, there's just it was a there's I think just less less of a demand out west. There's just fewer options bidding for it. So yeah, we all we had that Boise. we had that great year where Boise was overtaken by the locals. Yep, Georgetown, Mason, Maryland, Hampton. Yeah, it's a great it was a great tournament. Um, okay. So I think, you know, we could talk about COVID for five hours and we've been talking about COVID for, what is it, eight months now? Nine, nine months? It seems, it seems longer. It seems like eight years. But uh, we'll switch gears here. Days. What's that? It's 250 days. Oh, that's, that, that's just great. Um, okay, quick reminder, everyone. If you haven't subscribed to Kente Corner, go ahead and do that. Um, it's great. It helps us out. If you haven't rated or reviewed, that would be great as well. And you can do it. It's all the places you find podcasts, uh, Google, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio. Um, so that would be great. And if you like what you're hearing, let us know. If you don't, hit me up on Twitter at Bobby Bancroft, and I will try and get your topic covered. So Georgetown has a schedule, part of a schedule. They have their non-conferences complete. And they've got part of their conference through the end of the year. They could have played up to seven games non-conference. They're only playing five. They backed out. Well, not backed out, but, you know, they were one, they were one of the first schools when they moved, like the Wooden Classic that they were going to be in. They were one of the first schools when they are all going to move to Florida. They bowed out based on what they had done a couple years ago. Most people were kind of thinking, oh, this is what Georgetown does. But actually, Georgetown was – a step ahead of everybody because none of those things are happening. And Georgetown actually looked like they were pretty smart there. 
So cannot complain about the schedule. When you look at the schedule, I think it makes a lot of sense. You've got your West Virginia game. That is part of the Big 12 Challenge. That's a good team. Bob Huggins and them are going to be ranked. and They're supposed to be good. You have Syracuse. That's a good ACC school. And then when you go to the other three schools, just by being local, they're going to start on Wednesday, November 25th. That's their first game next week against UMBC. Then they're going to host Navy. These games are all at McDonough. And then a week after Navy, they are going to welcome in Juan Dixon and Coppin State, which, you know, to me, UMBC is probably a good mid-major. Navy is probably in the middle. And then Coppin State is probably what you would consider a low major. Is that about right? And what do you think, how do you think their schedule looks given the constraints of what we're living through? Yeah, I don't think anybody can really get criticized for uh, for any kind of non-conference schedule that they manage to stitch together unless it has them doing one of these just jumping from time zone to time zone type things. Um, yeah. I think if you're Georgetown, like you said, you, you, you kept the rivalry that, that people care about the most. You have a made-for-TV game with West Virginia that doesn't involve either team getting on a plane. Uh, and you have three local rivals, three local teams. I mean, let's not let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here to call them <laughs> rivals. But but three local teams. I mean, in some ways, you kind of wish. Um, again, if you're going to have a non-conference schedule, you probably kind of wish that there were a couple more of those teams that are within driving distance of here. So, a James Madison, I'll throw that one out there for you. Oh yeah. Uh, a, uh, a um, a Mount St. Mary's, you know, whatever. I mean, we could we could come up with. There's enough schools that are within a two-hour drive of DC yeah. that, that would fit the, that would fit the bill. So, leaving a couple of those on the table, yeah, you, you kind of wish they weren't doing that, but but you get it, right? Like anything is. This is goes back to what we were talking about a half hour ago. Anything's better than nothing. So, UMBC is a team that has been top half of the America East for the last four years now uh and they bring back uh four of their starters so that they should be pretty good and they were a, they were a pretty decent team by the end of last season uh, have they knocked they off a, a big school since uh uva no not really um okay. but you know they, they they've probably done better with vermont than just about anybody else in the america east in that span and that's no small thing so you kind of look at them, and they had a ton of injuries last year. They were beat up when they came to Georgetown in December last year. If they can simply stay healthy, um, you know, I think that they'll be decent. That game, I don't know if you saw, UMBC has that game listed as a as a four o'clock start the day before Thanksgiving. So something to something to look forward to before you you dine um, the day before Thanksgiving. Georgetown. Absolutely. So Georgetown, real quick, Patrick, and you you cover a lot a lot of Georgetown games. Um, you do a handful for the post usually. I think what we're looking at, people kept asking past, you know, Patrick Ewing who the starters were, and I know that fans are very excited about that. You hear a lot about on Twitter. I think just looking at it, and I know neither of you, um, neither you or I, have scouting reports really on the freshmen, but I think on a base level, it's pretty reasonable to assume you start Blair, Pickett, and Wahab, and then. I don't know how much you've seen of Jalen Harris transfer from Arkansas, a grad transfer point guard. And then maybe, you know, a little bit about Donald Carey from Siena. 
I think that that would probably be what I expect for the starting five. And then, you know, you're looking at all freshmen plus um, they have a, a transfer from Northwestern State. Uh, I'll probably say his name wrong. Chudier Bile. Does that sound like to you probably what their starting five is going to be? Yeah, something like that. I mean, like you said, Donald Carey actually uh, saw him uh, saw him when he started his career at Mount St. Mary's. Okay. Uh, and, he, and he's somebody, you know, I mean, they've obviously had some level of success with guys stepping in as grad transfers and, and being useful pieces. So I, I can certainly see him uh, being somebody that, that plays a pretty prominent role, especially on this roster. Like you say, Jalen Harris, a guy that has high major experience, so, you know, I think I think there's a there's a lot of wild cards, it's fair to say, when it comes to the Georgetown's roster this season. And that being said, do you think UMBC, you know, I'm not trying to scare everybody, but when I look at UMBC, and by the way, I'm a little surprised, and maybe you know more about this, that Ryan Odom is still there, uh, particularly after the Wake Forest job came open. I think a lot of people just sort of maybe assumed that was the natural progression for him. But Ryan Odom is there. They have a team that's picked second in the American East. I think it might take Georgetown a little bit to get going with, you know, eight new players that are probably going to end up playing on some level. Is this kind of a game that, you know, maybe you might rather start with Coppin State rather than UMBC? Is UMBC a team that could that could probably, you know, play with them to the end? The funny thing is, is that Coppin actually has a lot of interesting new players that, you know, heavens knows what how it's going to shake itself out. They were really? actually... They, they 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 have a chance to be to be interesting. I don't know if I'm going to go so far as to say dangerous. And I would tell you that having talked to Juan Dixon in the preseason, going into each of his seasons so far, that, that he is a he is not the sort of guy that's going to like downplay his team. He's going to play up his guys okay. uh, and and see where things fall. Uh, but you know you know UMBC is going to be well coached. You know. Uh, hopefully, we'll get the chance to see Darnell Rogers, the, the son of Shante Rogers, who's five foot two and understands exactly how to use his body. So basically, he, he quit growing when he was in like eighth or ninth grade. So he's five two, but he knows he knows how to use that. He's had so many so much time to figure out how to make the most of that. And he was hurt most of last season. Hurt by the time they played Georgetown. What um, what year is he? I'm really. Uh, he is a he's a senior. Okay. Um. So. They have him, you know, they, they've got experience in the backcourt. They've got L.J. Owens, who averaged almost 10 a game last year, began his career at William & Mary. Uh, the guy that really makes them go uh, is a Brit by the name of R.J. Idlerock. Uh, and when he played last year, they were so much better than when he didn't play, even if he wasn't putting up uh, truly ridiculous numbers. But he's such a stabilizing force for them. Uh, and they also have – you know, some guys up front that are, that are capable, uh, Brandon Horvath, Dmitry Spasievich, uh, and Daniel Akin. All those guys, I think, uh, are capable of helping them out. I do think that that's a tricky game for Georgetown with all the questions that it has as it begins the season. And then is, is Navy kind of a middle-of-the-pack team? I mean, first of all, we should, we should step back for a second. Navy has had problems on campus – to where their football games keep getting postponed. So that might turn out, you know, when I saw that opponent was the last opponent that we knew about based on Coppin State and UMBC, I think had both had both announced their schedules before Georgetown made theirs official. Uh, you know, 
one, you know, you're talking about, you know, not, you know, just the possibility that, you know, if any league was going to follow the Ivy, the Patriot would be that league. And that, that's kind of where, you know, that's, that, that's where Navy is. Um, so there's a little bit of a worry between the COVID outbreak that's caused the football postponements and just what the Patriot League might do. But that being said, I tried to find a Patriot League um, coaches poll. I couldn't find it. Is Navy kind of middle well, of the pack? Well, or? well, well here's, here's the thing. Like um, the Patriot League basically followed the Ivy's lead and said no non-conference play. And the difference for Navy and Army is they have an exception carved out and oh. service academies that they're allowed to do. Like, like Navy played, like, soccer games this this fall. Not a lot, like two or okay. three. But okay. they're allowed to go out and schedule a handful of games. So Navy men's basketball, for example, I think has five games for sure that it has scheduled. It, it opens uh, on the first day of the season against George Washington at home, plays Maryland and Mount St. Mary's over the weekend, then has the Georgetown game, and then in a couple weeks plays plays Morgan State. But uh, if I were to guess with Navy that they'll probably, whenever the when and if the Patriot League does do a preseason poll, they'll probably be picked about, you know, seventh and finish somewhere in the four, five, six range. Um, they're That's not seven team, out of out of out of what? Out of, out of ten out of ten. Okay. Sorry. And you know, like they're they're a very and I don't say this to be condescending in any way. They're a very basic team in that, you know, Edicellis' philosophy can be summed up in, in, you know, defend, rebound, and take care of the ball, which is about as simple as it gets. Like, those are, those are the priorities. And so, you know, they are generally maybe not the greatest offensive team, but they will defend you. Um, they will play really hard, which, you know, as the – as former Georgetown lacrosse coach Dave Urich once said after a game against Army uh, in the NCAA tournament, is like, you know, you knew they were going to come out and, 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 and not give up in the second half. Otherwise, we're all in trouble. Um, you know, <laughs> like Navy, Navy's going to play you hard. Uh, and, and so – and they've got four starters back as well. They've got some really interesting pieces in, in the backcourt in Cam Davis and John Carter Jr. Uh, and then, uh, you know, like that's essentially – uh, when you think about them, they've also got Luke Lair as a, as a solid big guy, not necessarily uh, a monster in the in the middle, and then Greg Summers uh, as a wing as well. So you know they have pieces back. I mean, they were about a 500 team last year, went 14 and 16 overall, eight and 10 in the Patriot League. So is that a game Georgetown should win? Yes. Is that a game that Navy can make uncomfortable just because of how hard they play? Yeah. Um, that's one of those games that if you're Georgetown, you, you'd really like to go and get up 19 to four, um, and then just have some space to work with the rest of the way. I think, and I'm sure you've been, cause I know Navy has that. I shouldn't say, I sure. I know you've been to games in Annapolis and obviously this is a bad year to do any of that stuff, but I think one of the cooler games I went to, and this was before I was covering the team, uh, Georgetown played at. Navy, I think the 2005 six season, and that was a pretty cool event. It was pretty cool, and it was. I know that that wasn't the same coach. That was um, that was uh, Billy Lang. Billy Billy Lang is now up at St. Joe's. Right, but uh, it, that was the way that they played then too. 
Um, they were completely mismatched, and that was a much better Georgetown team than this one's going to be. That was a that was a Sweet 16 team, but uh, definitely cool that they went to Navy. I think that was the year where they opened up at JMU and then at Navy, or maybe it was it was the other way. It was one of those ways, and it was definitely pretty cool. Um, do you think by the time Georgetown plays Syracuse in January, there might be two Bayheims on the team? <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> What do you think is going to happen to those to those kids that are in the Ivy League that are trying to transfer right now? I mean, is that something that you think is going to happen? Well, I mean, the thing that all of them have going for them is that they'll have an extra year to play with anyway next year. Yeah. So, regardless, like this is a sen- this year is essentially a freebie. If you can if you can get eligible, good for you. Um, but that year of eligibility is going to be safe no matter what. Okay. Um, non-conference games during what's normally, you know, after January, let's say, which is always pretty much predominantly, almost exclusively conference games. That is when Georgetown and Syracuse play. This is the fifth, this is the sixth meeting since Syracuse left for the ACC. It's the first time that they are going to meet uh, outside of December. Do you have any sort of feel for non-conference games in this part of the season. I love them. I think it's cool. I think it's great to see what, you know, what you're sort of made of. It just kind of breaks it up. Georgetown has played um, Duke a couple times. They've played Michigan State. Um, they played Connecticut when Connecticut, Connecticut won the league. Yep. Yeah. So I think it's, I think that those, I think are good for the fan base. I think it's good for the team just to kind of face somebody different. Do you have any sort of thoughts on these games being played? And I, I think also, and I've said this about Georgetown, Maryland, and maybe you can you can speak to this as well. Um, I think that unfortunately football just dominates so much that I think that the two Georgetown, Maryland games that we've seen in the uh, the Gavit games, I think would have been a bigger deal if they happened in January or February. I, I miss, and it's been 25, 30 years now, 20 years, I guess, since we saw it on a semi-regular basis. But I, I miss having everybody except at a non-conference at a conference play to play one or two games in yeah. January, February, whether that's, whether that's just playing, if you're, if you have a bye in the middle of the week and you happen to play, you know, a random non-conference game just to stay sharp or, um, or have one of those intersectional games that, that's really intriguing. Um, I mean, I think back uh, to when Maryland's, went to the year it went to its first final four in 2001 they played oklahoma in february oh wow i didn't know that oh they played oklahoma at coalfield house in february um and then the next year they returned the game to norman right before christmas um but you know i i i think that the fact that that so much has come down to television dictating all this stuff that that's one of the things that's definitely been lost. It's, it's one of the things across a lot of sports. I mean, uh, you know, you know me as somebody that, that follows a lot of lacrosse, and that's something that's been damaged as well. You don't have nearly as much scheduling flexibility as you once did, even in a sport like that. So you certainly don't have it in basketball either. Uh, but I agree. I think that there's a lot of value um, and, and also kind of a change of pace type of thing rather than just everybody kind of getting into that, well, we're going to play Wednesday, we're going to play Saturday, weekday, week, week, weekday, weekend, et cetera. Um, 
and, and games like that are, are things that you kind of miss a little bit. So, you know, I, I, I frankly wish everybody had to do that once or twice. And, and if that meant that, you know, for, for the sake of chasing television dollars, that you play, everybody normally played three or four league games before Christmas, so be it. Like, whatever, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't have a huge problem with, with that. It's now some of, now if you're a coach and you start doing the calculus of, well, let's say you're, let's say you're Ewing uh, and you've got a Gavit game and you've got a, an exempt event, a multi-team event, and you've got the big 12 game that you got to factor in there somewhere. Uh, and you've got three other conference games uh, or four other conference games. That's a lot to cram in uh, right before Christmas uh, overall. Uh, so I can understand it from that perspective, but I do think it's, I do think it's neat to be able to have one or two of those games every year. That's intersectional that, that highlights everything. And like you said, um, like it or not, college basketball has shifted more and more towards being a, a one month to six week endeavor in the eyes of a lot of sports fans over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, not for somebody like me, but for a lot of people. And right. so the more more of those games that you get outside of the college football and even the NFL window, the better I think your your product is going to be received. And hopefully the amount of teams in the Big East might help this along, right? If you have 11 teams, it's mm-hmm. probably going to make more sense for teams to step out of conference just because of it's an, it's an odd number. And, you know, the ACC has 15, so maybe they're kind of a natural partner with that. I don't know, but I would think that that, that might help a little bit, but that's at least my theory for the Georgetown Maryland games, not having a bright light on them is because unfortunately for as bad as they are, it's still, you know, Washington football team still playing and, there's all these different reasons. I think it would be, I think if Maryland and Georgetown played like February 5th or, you know, so I think it would be a really big deal. That's at least. Maybe, my, you know, you know I've, I've never, I've never been. And, and some of this is a matter of kind of looking at it. Like how often have, has Georgetown and Maryland played in my lifetime? Right. Right. They played in nine. They played in 93 um, early in the 93, 94 season. They played in the tournament in 01. They played in Old Spice. Orlando, Orlando, right? Like in 08, I guess it was like Thanksgiving 08. Yeah. Yeah. And then the two, and then the two Gavit games. And, you know, when you kind of look at, you know, when were both of those teams are really good, neither of them, you had, you had Maryland that hadn't quite proven itself for that first game. Um, you had Georgetown as a 10 seed for that tournament game. You know, Maryland wasn't, supposed to be great they were coming off an NIT season uh going into 0809 and then those obviously weren't great Georgetown teams in the Gavit games um so some of me is skeptical just because they they haven't played each other while they're really high end um at any point recently yeah um, and I I do and I I just kind of feel like there's a the, the idea of that as a rivalry is a little contrived and you know people People at Maryland kind of poo-poo that idea, you know, like fans of Maryland anyway. Um, and there's certainly some folks at Maryland historically that have kind of looked over 
looked over and said, well, what's Georgetown doing? Why, why, why are you guys, why, why does Georgetown get this? Or why does Georgetown do that? And, and I don't think that matters quite as much on the Georgetown side of things, to be perfectly candid. Um, but I, I, I don't necessarily believe that's like this great missing rivalry. I, I just, I don't. And, and, and if both teams were good, I'd probably feel a little bit different, like really good, like top 15, top 20 good. And that's kind of that's kind of when it stopped when I was researching it a while ago, you know, um, as as big big John Thompson was getting things going, you know, you could kind of see their teams getting better. And then the the deficit, you know, the margin in the Maryland game was getting less. And then they had a year where, you know, they they finally beat him. And then I think a year or two later, they beat him twice because they played in the Sweet 16. I think that was 1980 when Georgetown lost to Iowa, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of went away. So, you know, we didn't really get a chance to see it, you know, and I guess a lot of things happen, but I just, I think that if, if, if it, if it, I guess I'll say it differently this way. If it has a chance of mattering more, I think it would have to be played outside of a November game. Yeah. Just, and we certainly, we certainly saw that with the, the game in DC, right? That the place, the place was what? Two thirds full, maybe. Was that and was that one of those six thirty games? It might have been. It might have been a six thirty game. And I just remember, you know, it was definitely a good crowd for that time of year. But I remember thinking, like, ugh, this <laughs> isn't good. And, and, and frankly, it, it was what I mean. Would you have said that was probably like sixty percent Maryland fans that game? I. It'd be hard to argue that. Yeah. About. Uh, yeah. It, it, Certainly no better for Georgetown than a 50-50 split in fans. Right. And that's probably, you know, that was, I think, that was why the whole 93 game happened the way it did and all that stuff. And then that game just caused such bad feelings for everybody of, well, it was played on your home court, but you guys split the tickets. Um, my, I actually was at that game, and um, my family friend had season tickets, and we had to sit in different seats because it was not part, you know, it wasn't part of that, but then mm-hmm. that, that caused a problem for like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I, I can tell you that there was definitely, there was definitely excitement um, going into the game in college park uh, when they played. Uh, and that was a pretty good crowd. Um, and that was, like, a, that was, a, wasn't it like a top, that, that was like a top five Maryland team. Yeah, that was I, I'm pretty sure that was the the Trimble and Diamond Stone and Jake Lane yeah. team off the top of my head. I think that was the case. They held on. It was it was closer yeah, than I thought was, it was gonna be. Yeah, that was um that was there in, in early in the fifteen sixteen season. So that was that was a Maryland team that was certainly pumped up uh in terms of uh in terms of height for sure. Uh, so there was a little bit of that in play as well. Yes, I stand by it. I think non-conference games in January and February are awesome. Um, okay, so I don't even remember. This was sometime during baseball season, and <laughs> we were talking. You want, you, want to, you want the actual date on this email? <laughs> I'm going to guess June. It was May, May 16th. <laughs> So many things happened. There was always a reason not, you know, I mean, the, the COVID and there was just, there was a lot of reasons. I think Ewing, Ewing, you know, Ewing, caught. Yeah, Ewing getting 
COVID was definitely one of the variables. Yeah, and there was just not, a lot of not, a lot not, of... To cre- not to creating this, but to postponing our conversation about. Yeah, so I turned to you and I said, you know, hey, and you know, I'm not saying that you know Ewing's job is in question or in jeopardy or any of these things, but what I think is, and he falls into an, a unique category of not having coached in college before, and he's literally the face of the program program's best player by almost any metric, all that stuff. But what I do think is interesting to look around and you say, Hey, how often do coaches at, and we're not going to use power five because that's a football term, but you know, major conferences. So you, you, you include the power five, I suppose. Right. And then you throw in the big East and, you know, I think that's for our discussion. That's where we stopped, but I suppose other people could lobby hard for the American or the A-10 or I don't know, whatever. But anyway, I believe it was the top six conferences. It was. And, it was. and you know, just, just how often does a, does a coach come in and, you know, miss the tournament X amount of years and what's sort of the result? How long do schools give coaches like that? And how long do coaches that start out missing the tournament, do they recover? And like, what does it look like? And I guess I might've even thought maybe you already, you know, knew this or you already had this going and maybe you did, but you came up with a really interesting list. And, uh, you know, as the person that came up with it, what do you think is the best way to sort of, sort of attack all, all this information? I'm assuming you're looking at a copy of it right now. Absolutely. Okay, good. Um, I mean, the charts are pretty self-explanatory. So how about we start with like the, the group of current offers okay. and then kind of, and then kind of work out historically. Cause we're, we're going historically based on the last 20 years. Well, yeah. The first and then back I think, that we... Yeah. And then it's, you know, good to sort of point out like what's best case scenario for guys that went oh for whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, okay. So, yeah. So, so currently, Georgetown, I think, was, you know, I think we can rest assured was not going to be invited to the tournament last year. Brad Underwood at Illinois, he's over three. Archie Miller at Indiana, he's over three. And I, they probably would have made the tournament, right? Uh, Illinois would have made the tournament. Indiana was, Indiana was certainly a possibility. Okay. And then. Oh, then, then, yeah, then also at uh, Oklahoma State. So you've got you got three guys that are all coming back for year four, correct? Yeah, all four, including Ewing, it's four guys. Yeah. And then the other guys that are 0 for 4 right now, you got you got Josh Pastner at Georgia Tech. How do you say the guy's name at Stanford? Jared Hoff. That's right. And then I think the the, the most harsh is Rutgers situation and Rutgers actually is the reason that I really thought they should have made a bracket because Rutgers I think could have hung a banner it would have been the first time in 30 years and also I think it would have been nice for Dayton if they'd gotten a one seed just to be like hey we we got a we got a one seed so those are the current 0 for 4s and I guess just you know do you know what kind of expectation I mean so all those schools that we just listed I guess, well, I, I, 
I guess Ewing with, you know, Georgetown, I guess Illinois, Indiana, Oklahoma State would be schools that expect to make the tournament, right? I mean, those are schools like in a four-year period are probably thinking they're making it three times. you think of that? Is that the expectation? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I, I think Illinois and Indiana, you're talking about two of the Big Ten schools where basketball arguably means more than, than football does. Um, yeah. Indiana, Indiana, that's absolutely the case. And, and Illinois, um, almost by necessity, I think it, it's the case. And so, you know, you look at Underwood, like Illinois would have been in the tournament last year. They would have been like a five or six seed or something like that. So you almost could cross him off the list. And Oklahoma State is a place that historically has really good basketball. Uh, maybe not Kansas-level basketball, uh, but it's a place that cares about basketball. <laughs> and I think, uh, I, I, obviously, if, if Mike Boynton makes it to year five, he's going to be over four because they've got a postseason ban this year. Um, but even though they, also, have, they have arguably they the, have top, the, best player, the top. Even though they have the best freshman in the country. So. Yeah. And then when you when you when you go down further, the current 0 for five is Dave Lado at DePaul. Um, current 0 for six is Jim Christian at BC. I was a little surprised that Jim Christian's sticking around. Yeah, I I, I think that um, I think some of that is a fun. They did not finish well last year. One of their best players got hurt in the preseason last season. Winston Pabs. Um, I think in some ways there's a little bit of a for any of these guys that are currently either 0 for 5 or 0 for 6 or, or 1 for 5 or 1 for 6 or 1 for 7 where you're looking at them and saying you know <laughs> excuse me did you really in March want to fire somebody when they had money left on their contract and I'll be more must now. So I think, as you as I said when this started, it's hard to compare. Would you agree that it's just hard to compare Ewing and Georgetown to anything on this list? Out of all of those, yeah. I mean, the fact. I mean, the, really, the, the 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 comparison that's easy to make is, is Chris Muller, um, right? At St. John's, where yeah, like what what do you do? Like, if it doesn't work out, what do you do? And I think another thing too is you know most of these guys coached previously. I mean, it's you know it's unusual to get a job like Georgetown, um, without having coached somewhere and you know so a lot of these guys can point to past success um Enough, you know, his... i will i will say that as we go further down the list that there is there is a little bit of a a little bit of a comparison between between ewing at georgetown and sydney low at nc state who who had five years without going to the tournament of course sydney low had been an nba head coach prior to getting the nc state job And that, yeah, that's that's sort of interesting. So in looking at, okay, so now I'm going to go down to, we talked about all the current stuff. Those are guys that are currently coaching. I think the guy, I think um, I think Stanford actually looking like they're kind of on the up. Dave Lado, it looks like, you know, I know that we're not 
recruiting experts, they seem like they're doing a better job. When you look at the coaches that went 0 for 4, you know, there's a list. Greg McDermott's on there as someone that maybe left Iowa State before they had a chance to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. And he's really had made, you know, a lot of success at Creighton. Um, as far when you look at the guys that that were gone, um, the 0 for fours that got another year. Kevin Stallings at Vanderbilt. I know it was terrible at Pitt, but he had got Vanderbilt to a pretty good spot. He made it in year five. Scott Drew, obviously, is you know Baylor is, you know, <laughs> that I mean that's a, that's a special case. <laughs> the, Scott Scott Drew basically came in at a, a you know just a just a I don't even know how to describe what was going on down there. There have been some really, is probably an, an adequate word. Right. So when you're looking at that, Scott Drew is, you know, when if you want to look to something that someone that got went 0 for 4, because let's be honest, Georgetown was picked last in the Big East um, preseason coaches poll. I don't think there's a lot of arguing. I think if a lot of things went their way, they could probably get as high as 8 or 9. I think that's probably being pretty optimistic. So I don't, you know, I, I think that it's fair to assume that this year, if it happens, <laughs> whatever, you know, if it's if it's March Madness or May Madness, they're unlikely. So Ewing is likely to go over four. Um, I could even take it a step back and say that last year at this time they were looking like a team that was NCAA tournament caliber. He was looking like year three was going to maybe be it. We know everything that happened. We don't need to talk about that. They lost a lot of guys. They had a big recruit that was coming, didn't go. So he probably got the reset button. And I think when you flip the page and you go for the guys, the coaches that were 0 for 5 and got another year, well, I should, I, should, I guess I should stop. Frank Martin, South Carolina, was 0 for 4. He'd obviously coached before. Um, he then got South Carolina to the place everybody wants to get. Um. The coaches that were 0 for 5 got another year. I think Herb Sendek did a good job at NC State. I think the Wolfpack have been struggling to replace him since he left. Uh, Kevin Willard is on this list. He's done a good job at Seton Hall and making, you know, Seton Hall and Providence have done a great job um, in the new Big East. And then the 0 for 6 standard is, I mean, Leonard Hamilton, right? And obviously he had been a coach for a long time. But I think... You know, I'm starting to name some guys that went 0 for 4, 0 for 5, 0 for 6, that if you're a Georgetown fan, you're thinking, okay, this can happen. But they all sort of happened at schools. I mean, I guess, you know, Seton Hall and NC State. But Florida State, for example, you know, Leonard Hamilton just kind of had to do a good enough job of staying out of the spotlight with football, right? That's kind of what's going on there. You know, you, you think about what Leonard Hamilton's managed to do for most of the last 30 years between Miami and Florida State. Um Leonard Hamilton's a, a crafty operator, um, and not just because not just because he's seventy years old, but looks like he's about forty-five. I mean, he's definitely got that fountain of youth thing going on down there in Florida. But you know, taking jobs where the goal is to be, where the, the general expectations are, be competent. Which it took him a couple years at Florida State to get that thing going. But they were they had become kind of a regular NIT team um, until he broke through in his seventh season. Uh, and maybe NCAA tournament. Um, so, yeah, and, and now, I mean, it's funny. I, I got a text from somebody today, um, and I didn't tweet about this, and I probably should have, but he, he texted me and said it said something to the effect of um, six, six, seven, and 6. He said, 
Florida State's losses the last four years, and I replied, football or basketball? Ooh. And it wasn't that far off. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, Leonard Hamill's done a, phena- done a phenomenal job. I think yeah, that... Yeah, I mean, when, when, I think when that, we're looking at this... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that for... One of the things you have to remember is that when you make a coaching change, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be in the right, that the results are going to go in the direction that, that you're aiming. Second of all, if you're a Georgetown fan, you see on here, you see Norm Roberts, you see Oliver Purnell, you see Jerry Wainwright, and you see currently Dave Lado. And that's kind of the company Georgetown's been keeping recently. St. John's and DePaul. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be the thing that would scare someone as a Georgetown fan. You're like, wow, like they're on this list. And, you know, like that's not the company you want to keep. Now, like I said, um, Kevin Willard's on here. So Kevin Willard, you know, got the time and, I think after Big East Media Day, I think he might be the most interesting coach in that in that league. Um, Greg McDermott's on here, but you know, is there like you know outside of you know you said Sidney Lowe and outside of Chris Mullen, I think that when you look at these coaches and you say, okay, well, you know, a lot of these coaches are guys that like Jim Christian at Boston College, he got a mid major to, you know, to the promised land and then he gets hired and, you know, Ewing doesn't really fit into a category and Georgetown doesn't really fit into a category. Right. So while this list is great at at the end of the day, I still don't think, I still don't think that we kind of know where they fit. Right. No. And and, and I think even without naming the actual coaches on here, like if you go, if we run down, I'm going to run down the O for four list and then the O for five list just by score. Okay, Arizona State, Clemson, Vanderbilt, Rutgers, Baylor, Georgia, DePaul, NC State, Washington State, DePaul, Georgia Tech, Texas A&M, South Carolina, and Washington State. And this is this is over the last 20 years. So coaches that had missed the tournament their first four years and got a fifth year and either made the tournament in their fifth year or were done after five years. Yeah. And now the 0 for 5 list. NC State, Texas A&M, Minnesota, Kansas State, Michigan, Oregon State, TCU when it was still in the Mountain West, Auburn, St. John's. And by the way, all of those are by 2009. There's only four 0 for fives um, that got that got another that got another year and had their fate decided by that year in the last ten years. Nebraska, yeah. Oregon State, Stanford, and Seton Hall. So while that's not entirely a list of schools that either don't care about basketball or have just been bad for so long that, you know, what does it hurt giving a guy a sixth year after they may, after they missed the first five? Um, that's a lot of those schools. Um, you know, Auburn in 2009, what did it have to lose by giving a coach a sixth year at that point? Oregon State at almost any point in the last 30 years, same kind of deal. Um, you know, and, and some of these – ultimately did work out. Like you said, Kevin Willard has, has done really well for the last five seasons um, after going 0 for 5 in his first five years at Seton Hall. Now, some of that comes down to the Big East gets reconstituted and, and Seton Hall's in much better shape 
without all those other schools that, that departed. Well, um, and, and even, it coincides when Georgetown last made the tournament. It does. It does. Um, and when we get into, like, the – there's a handful of names we haven't gotten to here. Um, 0 for 6 got another year, was Barry Collier at Nebraska, but he left to take the AD job at Butler. Leonard Hamilton and Andy Kennedy at Ole Miss, which I don't think anybody considers to be a basketball power. Um, Ed DeCellis, um was 0 for 7 and got a 10 seed and then left for Navy. Um, Pat Chambers went 0 for 8 and would have made the tournament last year had the season been able to complete. And then Bill Carmody at Northwestern. But if we're talking about Penn State and Northwestern, we're again talking about schools that historically haven't been overly committed to the sport. Like it's just not, it just hasn't been that big of a deal there um, historically, not necessarily presently, but historically. Um, and so if, you, if you're Georgetown, you can't be thrilled to find yourself in company of people don't care or you're just not very good. Um, and I'll leave it to other people to say whether Georgetown fans care. Uh, I think if, if the team was better, you wouldn't have crowds of 3,500 in an intimate gathering in the in uh, in Chinatown uh, yeah. for your random non-conference games. But and, I mean, it wasn't too long ago that we saw that. You know, we saw the stretch from, you know, the 2005-06 season until the 2014-15 season where, um, you know, they were almost in the tournament every year and we saw better crowds. And obviously that was aided by the Big East being, um, you know, there was bigger teams coming in there with bigger mm-hmm. fan bases. But, you know, we, we, we did see what it, what it was like and like everything people, people like a winner, but, but yeah, you're right. I think that the only thing that really, we really have to go on about like what's going to be acceptable is, you know, John Thompson, the third missed the tournament two years in a row and they kind of did the unthinkable, right? Yeah. I certainly didn't think that was going to happen. then. Um, right. Right. So, you know, as far as, you know, what is the school and like, what's the expectation with, you know, building the Thompson Center and, you know, they've obviously put a lot of money into it. You know, it, it is, it is interesting. And I think a lot of people's expectations when Ewing showed up was by year three and by most, I think by most people's, you know, eyeball test of the team last year at this time, they were probably looking like they were going to fulfill that. And so between, you know, the school being Georgetown, between Patrick Ewing being Patrick Ewing at Georgetown, and between having like a reset really quick, they're kind of in their own, in, in their, in their own category. It, it, you know, it's, it is really interesting to see these schools. And like I said, the one thing that pops out to me is DePaul keeps, you know, showing up on this list. And that's it, it kind sure of. Does. And, sure that's... and the thing, is, the thing is, too, like we sit here and say we're sitting here in November of 2020 and looking at this list and saying, well, Georgetown doesn't necessarily fit on this list. But if you get another, and, and DePaul makes this an interesting point, if you get another five years down the road and Georgetown doesn't have an NCAA tournament, then it fits on the list, but just in in the way that you absolutely don't want it to fit on the list, which is that it's just a program that hasn't been good for a good long while. And so, to me, that's kind of the dangerous spot that that program finds itself in right now. Does it 
does it kind of slip into irrelevance? And this is this is a we're thinking down the road to 2025, 2028, something like that. I don't think that that's something that definitively gets answered in the next two or three years. Uh, but the next two or three years probably influence the direction that that does go. Yeah, so currently 0 for 3, 0 for 4 likely. You know, Georgetown bringing in a good recruiting class. You know, I think probably the expectation would be, I think you're looking at an 0 for 5 or 0 for 6. And that's kind of what I wanted to see. And I wanted to see who else was on that list. And there are some good spots. I mean, not good spots, but there are some some schools that I'm a little surprised went that long. I'm surprised NC State gave Herb Sednick that long. Surprised Michigan gave Tommy Amaker that long. Was Michigan football good during those times? Well, the is with both of those. Um, one thing was with NC State that they had had all of those crushing sanctions post-Valvano that Les yeah. Robinson took. And then Les Robinson became the athletic director. So I think he was more understanding um, of what a basketball coach was dealing with, especially a basketball coach at NC State um, at, that, at that very moment than maybe another AD would have. Michigan, too, had sanctions that it was dealing with. And so part of the part of Tommy Amaker's job at Michigan in the, you know, after the Fab Five rulings and post Brian Ellerby and, and the Steve Fisher era and all that, was simply to get the house in it. And so when you go back and you kind of size up what, what Amaker was bringing to the table, a guy who played at Duke, had been an assistant at Duke, really bright guy, had had some success at Seton Hall. And I think the goal there was just to get things situated pretty well. And after a losing season, I mean, you look at what he did, um, 17-13, they slipped backwards, and then – won 22 games the next two years and made three NITs in, in his last four seasons, was a chance, NIT champion one year when that probably felt pretty good and a runner-up another year when it probably didn't feel any good. Uh, and so I think, I think for Michigan, like the goal there, A, yeah, like you're, you're getting into some of those late Lloyd Carr teams that were decent if not great. Um, but, you know, like, like for example, um, that 06 Michigan team for football that coincided with Amaker's last year there was a team that was undefeated in playing Ohio State on the last weekend of the regular season. Um, but I think the bigger issue for Amaker's tenure there was simply to kind of clean things up and, and, and make it make it a program people could feel good about and everybody knew was following the rules. And then Norm Roberts, was that kind of the same deal? Was he clear? There was all, there was a little bit of that there too. I mean, it, it's interesting how often that sort of thing crops up. Uh, Norm Roberts uh, certainly had some adverse um, stuff to have to deal with during his time in Queens, and, and he also got six years to figure it out, and, and ultimately did not. Do you think that if Ewing gets to the point where it's over five, over six? Do you think that, you know, his name being on this list with these other schools and coaches, would we look back to last season as sort of the explainer for that? I mean, I think I think if we're looking right now, like last year is the season that they had out of his four, we'll count this year. 
I think it's fair to say that expectations were rightfully higher going into last season than any of the other three. And by the time thanks by the time you got to the Monday after Thanksgiving, it was pretty clear that the season had imploded. Right. Um, and you know, to the credit of the of of the guys on that roster, they did play hard. I mean, uh, there there were certainly for a good chunk of conference play, you're watching them and you're like, you know, they're they're making things more interesting than you thought they were going to be able to, to make them um, for a good chunk of you know December. But at the same time, that definitely with 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 having the guys that they had that goes down as a missed opportunity for sure, based on what they had at the start. Whether whether it would have worked out that way, you know, I mean, you you weren't you were there for it. I wasn't, but the the Bayheim press conference after after the Syracuse game last year, where you know he basically said, well, they wouldn't have won this game two weeks ago. Right. You no. Know? And I mean, I mean, how much how much how much did that would that have really translated over the course of a full season? Who knows. Yeah, I think, well, besides, you know, losing four players, at that point, they had no margin of error, right? They had to do, like, not like, you know, we've seen Mike Bray do with, like, a burn offense and, you know, different things to try and limp over the finish line. But then, I don't know how many games, I can't tell you right now, but, you know, you're at seven, missed a considerable amount of the season. McClung missed a certain amount, you know, a considerable chunk of games. At that point, you couldn't lose those guys. And the team that Beheim was talking about included McClung in your seven. Once yeah, you're, they lost, you're right, you're right. I mean, and, and that's and that's perfectly fair. And, and frankly, that team was fifteen and ten before the bottom fell out. Right. And at some point, there's only so much you can do when you're having to actually play walk-ons, not just at the end of a game if you're getting blown out or if you're winning by a lot. But when you're, you know, having to count on them against scholarship athletes on a consistent basis, you're really in a bad spot. I mean, for for the record, yes, I believe Georgetown would have won more games if it had if it had its full roster for the entire season. I'm not trying to, I'm not directly suggesting otherwise. Yeah, but yeah. You also, no, I know. You also, but you also don't know whether that situation would have been combustible deep into league play. And, oh, I mean, they, of course. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter who was playing in that Marquette game. They weren't going to win that one, uh, the way that thing unfolded on the road. Um, but there's certainly enough of those games that you look at that they were able to, to keep it interesting. I think about I think about both the Xavier and the Villanova games at the end of the season um, against teams that probably, when you look at their rosters, should have beaten what Georgetown was at the end of the season by double digits. Uh, and both of them were fortunate to escape with victories. Oh and man, the the Villanova game! I think I did the AP for that. I can't even. I can't believe it was that close at the end. I think it was a. Wasn't it? Uh, there was like a goaltend and a foul. Yeah, and the, there was. Yeah, just I mean, right? They were right there with a team that you know most people would probably have. You know, a lot of people would have had them in their. Uh, in their in their final four, but yeah, I do think if looking back, if they're on the O for you know it says you know Patrick Ewing, comma Georgetown, O for five got another year, and then the next season, who knows what that is? I think that like some of these other things, like Tommy Amaker, uh, like Norm Roberts, like Herb Sendak, I think that 
for all these guys, there are a story and I don't know the story. You know, I don't, I don't know. God, it's crazy to see Dan, Dan uh, Munson's name here in Minnesota, thinking about what he left at Gonzaga. Oh my. It isn't, isn't he back at like Long Beach State or something? He's at Long Beach State. Been there yeah. a long while, yeah. But yeah, I do think that it was great to get this list. It's, you know, and I think that's sort of what you want to look at is just, you know, as it goes further, does Georgetown match up with these other schools and what's going on? I mean, Texas A&M's on here a couple times and they've gotten things right now, you know, so things can happen. It's interesting. Like, you know, what is it? Bill Parr says, you know, you, you are who your record are. You are what your record says you are. And, you know, you are the company that you keep, um, you know, first step's going to be for Georgetown on the path forward with Ewing is trying to get out of, I guess it'll be a triple header now, but trying to get out of the double header Wednesday, right? That, that'll, you kind of make incremental steps. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that's almost how you have to evaluate it. It's not that different from, it's really not that different from when John Thompson the third took over, is it? Uh, you would have you would have been, been playing 12, 12 big East, or twelve teams in the Big East tournament at that point, right? Yeah, the year before he got there, Georgetown squeaked in. That was when they took twelve of sixteen teams, and they squeaked in to get the twelve seed. They never missed the Big East tournament, and they still haven't because they don't they don't exclude teams anymore. But yes, they were the they were the twelve seed when he uh, when he uh, showed up. It is, it is, it is crazy, and I can't believe how many years at Northwestern were they were they just on the bubble? Because I feel like that was like a a feel good story for a while. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a ton of seasons. Okay, like they, had a, they had a couple. They had a couple NIT teams in there. Like they they had two twenty win teams, um, but only one of, under Carmody. But only one of them had twenty wins in the regular season. They never got to any better than they were eight and eight in the Big Ten one year, but they were under five hundred overall. Um, too bad the CBI didn't exist back then. Um, <laughs> but you know, like they they had a couple eight and tens, a couple seven and eleven. Like they were they were competent um, in the in some of the latter stages under Carmody, but it wasn't they weren't great. Like they weren't they weren't the historical Northwestern pushover. That you knew they were going to finish, you know, that they were going to finish three and thirteen or five and five and thirteen or whatever in the league, depending on how many league games you were playing at that point. But, for, but especially on the back half of his tenure, like they were largely pretty good, but they weren't up until his last year when they they bottomed out. Um, but they weren't a serious thought as a NCAA tournament team really at any point in those in those. So in looking at the 0 for 4, because I'm just going to go ahead and make a really bold prediction. This thing's not going past 0 for 6 one one way or the other. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and I've decided that. This is not going to go past 0 for 6, meaning that, you know, either they're going to make it or there's going to be something just going to happen. Okay. So the, the guys that went 0 for 4, 0 for 5, 0 for 6, who would you say are you know the best couple of examples? And you know, we've probably already already mentioned them, but who would you say if you're if you're looking to hope, if you're looking to hey look, this could happen? 
what would be like the, the best couple of examples you think? Well, I think, I think Kevin Willard at Seton Hall is probably the most analogous one because it's the same league. Um, so I, 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 and I think too, uh, you mentioned Leonard Hamilton. That's probably your, I think that's your peak option at that point. Uh, there's not that many of these guys that manage to actually make something of this situation. Um, you know, you look at the 0 for fours, uh, that got another year and I'm just kind of counting up quick, eight, 12, 14, um, about half of them made it to the tournament in year four, in, in year five. So there is okay. something to be said that if you can get to that point, like Scott Drew is, is an entirely different animal. And if you can, you can, if you want to be inspired by that, great, but nobody has had to deal with a situation like Scott Drew did at Baylor. Um, if you want to draw some inspiration from Kevin Stallings making Vanderbilt a largely competent SEC program for probably a good decade or so, maybe not necessarily great, but competent, uh, I think you can do that as well. Um, but I think if you're – some of these you know, examples are still almost 20 years old. I mean, Herb Sendek, we're talking about him making his first tournament in his sixth year in 2002. Uh, so how much of a comparison you want to make there is kind of debatable. I mean, do you want to, you want to take the comparison with say Johnny Dawkins at Stanford, who in year six made the tournament for the first time as a number 10 seed, uh, and then went on a nice little run there. Uh, I think they made the sweet 16 and lost to Dayton that season. So, you know, maybe that's the comparison you want, but there's a lot more options on that list where you go, man, that didn't work out too well. Um, then, gosh, there's there's a ton of inspiration to take from from where this thing is. And that's the you usually know pretty quick one way or the other. Usually by about year four, or year five, uh, what your program trajectory is going to be. There's only there's only so many Kevin Willards and Leonard Hamiltons out there uh, that are able to get the opportunity to hang around long enough to do it, and then actually successfully pull it off. And there's so many variables, and um, I'd have to do my own work on this. I couldn't, I couldn't ask you to do it. I think one of the other interesting things, like I said, is how many of these guys coached before, which is almost all of them. And I say coach, I mean head coach in college. The other thing I'd be interested in looking up, and maybe I'll get to it someday, maybe during this season, during the pandemic, is you know how often the staff went unchanged. Because that is something that has happened um, at Georgetown. This is it's the same staff, and I wonder often, you know, in these, you know, you see it in the pros, you see it at the higher profile um, college sports. One of the first things that kind of happens is you kind of shift up, you know, your coordinators in football and in basketball, you know, different things. That'd be another another variable that uh, that that could be added to this. And I'm not trying to, you know say that Leonard Hamilton is my favorite coach of all time, but what's even crazier. And I, I thought this in my head and I just, I'm just looking right now is, so he went six years without making the tournament and then he made it obviously, but <laughs> he also has another four year run of not making it sandwiched mm-hmm. in between what I would consider right now. I'm not going to call it greatness, but I mean, you know, They've had a hell of a run the last four years, but yeah, right but before that, you had you had you had four straight misses of the tournament. So he literally did this twice, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, I mean, but going back to one of your original thoughts, Florida State was pretty good at football at that point, too. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, because that was what, they won the championship with Winston, and then they made in another 13, uh, playoff. Yeah, in, thir- in, in the 13-14 school year. So he was sort of, you know, middling, and that being said, he was making the NIT. There's an NIT semifinal in there. So it wasn't like they were, you know, on fumes. But as far as if we're going to just say, you know, making or missing the tournament, it's sort of crazy that he went, he had another another four-year uh, stretch in there. Well, Patrick, I've taken up a ton of your time. I could take up more of it, but I'm not going to do that today. Um. I guess we could leave on this. Do you think you're going to be at some college basketball games this year? I'm going to guess that I get to a handful of games this season, but the outside of the DMV. uh, No, I can't, I can't imagine. uh, I mean, heck I haven't been outside other than covering a handful of NAS games for AP. Yeah. um, I haven't been outside the state of Maryland since the 12th of March. So um, I don't know if, I don't know if I'll get over to Fairfax for a game or not, but if I don't, there's probably not going to be anything on that side of the Potomac. Um, it sounds like they're going to the have some some media. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, we'll see if there are increasing restrictions that are placed on indoor gatherings. Um, right. You know, that, that could very easily get nixed uh, just about anywhere. I mean, obviously, there's not going to be any media in the building uh, at Georgetown this year, in all likelihood. Certainly not at the start of the season. But there's not much reason to believe that will change. Is there um, a chance you could get not, to not, Paradise? Not because, of anything, not because of anything Georgetown's doing, but just because of just the pandemic reality. Right. Is there a chance you could get to Paradise? <laughs> I, I, I don't think I will be visiting uh, <laughs> the, the convention center. I mean, I know I know <laughs> 6th Street is – I mean, it's, it really is – It's it's paradise when I'm when I'm able to when I'm able to uh, you know avoid having to sit at that light too long when I'm going to when I'm going to Cap One when I have to turn over there coming in from up here by the Baltimore area but um, I never thought of it as truly paradise so that's for sure until now but I, I I don't anticipate doing that now yeah I'm probably going to complain less about traffic in the event the world ever gets back to normal. I'm probably going to, my tolerance is going to go up a little bit um, just because it will mean that we're functioning normally. Yeah, my tolerance was never very high for that to begin with. <laughs> and I think, too, that when you're, when you're in my spot and you, and you live by yourself, that your tolerance for people is, has been, you know, has, has diminished as well, which is a horrible thing to say. But like you're you, when you don't actually have to deal, don't have to be impatient with people or impatient with traffic or anything like that, and suddenly you're presented with it again. That that's gonna be that's gonna be a little harsh, I think. Overall, I, for me anyway. I think initially I'm I'm gonna handle it, and then I think I, I think we kind of all revert a little bit back to where we sort of fit with all of our all of our preferences. But I think you know. I don't live too far from George Mason, but if I leave at the wrong time, I sure as hell do. I'll say that. But anyway, um, Patrick, I want to thank you so much for talking about these 
topics. Um, everyone should follow him on Twitter at Discourse. That's with a one instead of an I. You get all your college football, college basketball, and I've come to I've come to handle the college lacrosse. I'm, I'm, I've come to handle it, and I think the fact that Denver is in the Big East, I think that I can stick around for that for that oddity. Yeah, there's. Uh, who knows how long that's going to be the case now, right? Like, I mean, I'm <laughs> sure Denver's kind of sitting there wondering, you know, can we get some more Western teams, please, so that we don't have to go so far. But yeah, I, I will. You know, I I know that I know that uh, there are definitely folks that consider me a seasonal follow and that season does not include about the beginning of April to the end of May. That's for sure. Yeah. I think, I think many years ago I was that way, but then, you know, you're going to miss out all of the great baseball eighties stuff and all the interesting cards and there's enough there. Plus you've got to, during the pandemic, you've had a great reading, reading suggestions. So I encourage everyone. Oh, and speaking of that, how hard is it going to be this year? for you to do the normal bubble stuff, the normal turn. I mean, I haven't, seriously, I haven't seriously thought about it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, you know, it wouldn't, I saw one idea. I think Jeff Goodman floated it. It's actually not a bad idea. Um, is if you just simply for a year have predetermined number of bids by conference um, and had like five or six wild cards to throw out there and you would base it on, performance over the last five years so yeah. a league like the, like the league like the a10 would get two or three a league like the big east would probably be guaranteed five and there would be a, there'd be about five wild cards kind of floating around out there for whoever the committee thought was most deserving beyond that and that way you're at least not trying to do impossible comparisons when you don't have that much crossover data to work you, with. you know what that sounds like What does it sound like? It sounds like World Cup stuff, right? It's uh, well, not World Cup. Well, yes, it, uh, yeah, it's like World Cup, but I think more analogous would be the way that they do the spots for the Champions League. Okay. So, like, based on your coefficient, you know, England gets four right now, but over time that could change to where it goes down to three. You know, so that's kind of what. But yes, on a basic level, that's kind of how they do the World Cup as well, but that this was, you know, um, the Champions League would be more of a the same style or the same number of teams because um, you got, you know, the, you know, there's only so many continents where they're coming from the World Cup, whereas, you, you know, you've got, like, how do we how do we deal with the really good team from Iceland? Well, we give them one spot and just be on with it. That'd be like dealing with, you know, the MAAC or whatever. Yeah, I mean, Let's face it. There's there's not going to be anything. There's not going to be anything ideal about this year, and so you might as well at least consider some alternate options that that wouldn't make sense if the world hadn't gone to hell. And then everyone could just run to Twitter and complain about it, right? That's just the way everything works. So it is. We already have the infrastructure set up so everyone can get their complaining out. So <laughs> it's perfect. Well, hopefully there is a tournament. Hopefully there is a reason to talk to you about actual basketball at some point in the next month, not just hypotheticals and protocols for entering and exiting arenas. 
And amen for that. All right, Patrick. I will I will talk to you soon. Awesome. Take care.